0: The last 12 months has been a year dominated by books on union with Christ. In November of 2011, we saw the release of two important volumes on the topic, Union with Christ in Scripture, History, and Theology by Robert Letham, And we also saw the release of a very good book from Todd Billings titled Union with Christ, Reframing Theology and Ministry for the Church. But neither of those books last year, and come to think of it, no book I can think of in any year, can match the comprehensiveness of a new book written by Australian theologian Constantine Campbell. Dr. Campbell currently serves as a professor at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia, and next summer he plans a transition to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School near Chicago. Campbell's 540-page book, Paul and Union with Christ, an exegetical and theological study, was released in November of 2012 by Zondervan. On a back cover blurb, Don Carson says it's highly recommended, and those are the only two words I need to hear from Dr. Carson to pique my interest. Dr. Campbell's book is thorough in its exegesis of biblical text, is meticulous in its organization and its structure, and it's encyclopedic in scope. Paul and union with Christ is certain to become a standard work on this topic, and it's also a fairly technical work that requires a little proficiency in Greek to take full advantage of. I put Dr. Campbell on the line from his office in Sydney, Australia, and in this interview, we will eventually get to pastoral and practical considerations and talk about union with Christ in relationship to his death and his resurrection, two massive biblical realities that shape the very nature of how we think of the Christian life. But first, we need to cover a couple of technical details, and to begin, I asked Dr. Campbell about the four terms that he uses in the book to collect the various ways Paul speaks of union with Christ, the four categories being union, participation, identification, and incorporation. I asked him to briefly summarize each of these four categories.
1: Yeah. Well, first, a little bit of background. Um, As you see in the, the book, particularly in one of the early chapters that discuss discusses the 20th century history of study of the theme, you see that New Testament scholarship moved from uh, using the term mysticism, uh, which is incredibly unhelpful in my view, through to union uh, and then uh, through to uh, participation. Um, And it was was actually through conversations with uh, Dr. Francis Watson who is also a great Pauline scholar, Uh, we were sort of talking about the adequacy of these terms. And um, it's been well-documented, the the problems with the term mysticism. I mean, you have to spend so much time indicating what you don't mean by it, that it it sort of becomes a a fairly useless term. Union is a lot better, but uh, it doesn't capture up everything. Um, And I I sort of regard union as a, a fairly kind of Static term, so it's useful for catching up ideas of, of being and status of relationship and mutual indwelling, things like that, but not quite so good at capturing up more dynamic ideas like participation. Um, so, you know, actually, uh, yeah, Dr. Watson suggested that I come up with a different term or terms to try to encapsulate this big theme and. Uh, I ended up arriving at Union Participation Incorporation, uh, sorry, Identification and Incorporation. And uh, in some what those terms refer to um, are, I guess, as follows. So Union captures the kind of nuptial union that we have with Christ, that we are, the, the Church is the bride of Christ, and that we have a, a, a mutual indwelling, that we exist in Christ and He is in us by the Spirit, uh, and it, it, it captures up the Trinitarian elements of theme. Um, but they're, as I say, mostly kind of static, status, relational kind of ideas. Uh, participation is more of a dynamic term, and, and, and uh, I use it to refer to um, the with language, so dying with Christ, being buried with Christ, being raised with Christ, um, being seated in the heavens with Christ, suffering with Christ, uh, etc. And I think that it does differ from union because it's it's not simply a static, of idea, but more of a dynamic, well, participation is a dynamic term. Uh, then identification, uh, I think, is a very significant idea capturing up what Paul talks about in terms of uh, being... Um, located within the realm of Christ or the sphere of Christ's rule. So, you know, for example, he has, he has transferred us from uh, the realm of darkness into the, uh, the, the kingdom of, of light uh, and we're under Christ's lordship, no longer belonging to the realm of Adam. Uh, and so that idea of realm transfer, I think, is particularly significant In Paul and identification seeks to capture up those kinds of ideas that we are identified by belonging to the realm of Christ rather than the realm of sin death the the devil represented by Adam Um, and finally uh, incorporation is a corporate term um, referring to the way that all believers who are united to Christ uh, by faith and in the Spirit are actually incorporated one into each other uh, as members of the body of Christ, and, and again, you know, obviously the the corporate uh, metaphors and language that Paul is concerned with is very significant for Paul. So, um, yeah, so I argue in the book that those four terms—union, participation, identification, incorporation—really capture up the full sweep of this. Uh, language and and ideas and, and metaphors that traditionally has been labeled union with Christ.
0: Yes, those four terms are very helpful, and I appreciate how you develop the distinctions in the book. At, at one point later in the book, you very briefly uh, make the point that the glory of God in Christ is the center of Paul's theology, and it's in that same section where you make an interesting point that Union with Christ, while being a major focus for the Apostle Paul that shows up all over in his writings, it's not the center of Paul's theology. You really may make a, an overall point in your book that union with Christ is the glue or, or the webbing that holds together all of Paul's theology. Explain that for us.
1: With union with Christ, you've got a, a sort of special problem because... Uh, you know, you work through the book and you see that it, it, it's everywhere in Paul. He, t- he talks about it on virtually every page, if not every page, of, of the Pauline canon. And uh, because of that, it's obviously significant, which is why scholars like Schweitzer said it's the center of what Paul's really about. But at the same time, Paul very rarely kind of stops and addresses it head on the way that he does talk about justification or uh, reconciliation or the significance of the resurrection or the significance of the cross, you know, topics that he does directly address and unpack. He doesn't really do that with union with Christ, um, at least not to the extent that you might expect if it was the real heart and soul, the center of everything that he's talking about. So I I basically propose in the book that um, the metaphor of webbing does justice to the frequency uh, and the widespread nature of Paul's references to union with Christ, that it, it is everywhere. And I also show in the book that it's connected to everything that he talks about. Uh, you know, everything that is ours in Christ is connected to this language of, of union with Christ, and, 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 and everything that uh, Paul is concerned about in terms of how believers are to live is connected to our union with Christ and, and so on. And just, just show that, you know, virtually everything he talks about at some point or other he connects it to this theme. Um, and so I I think webbing is a useful metaphor to to capture that idea that it's connecting all the dots, you know, it's connecting all the things that Paul talks about and all his interests uh, together by this kind of webbing fabric, if you like, of union with Christ. And so that, that I think, helpfully captures up the, the frequency and the widespread nature of the thing. But it also doesn't claim too much for it by saying it's the centre of what Paul talks about. And, and I don't think that's really justified, actually. Uh, it's, it's no doubt extremely important, very significant, but it doesn't occupy a centre in terms of a, a kind of controlling... Directive idea, but rather as the way that everything is joined together and and connects us and everything that God does for us to
0: Christ. Some theologians are concerned today that with an emphasis on union with Christ, it will diminish the forensic priorities of justification or imputation. How do you respond to that?
1: Uh, yes, and um, in that way, I, I guess I'm following the lead of Richard Gaffin, who helpfully points out that this is really the way that Luther and Calvin spoke about both union and imputation, um, that the, the two ideas were not in competition, but actually uh, imputation is grounded in our union with Christ. Um, and I think Gaffin helpfully shows us that um, with uh, Luther and Calvin, what they mean by imputation is is not that Christ's righteousness is an abstract quantity, quantifiable substance that can be lifted off Christ and then kind of dropped on us. But rather, when we are joined to Christ by our union with him, when we are married, if you like, to Christ, then we we share in his righteousness. And so uh, union with Christ is essential, I think, for imputation. But what imputation captures up is the idea that, uh, properly speaking, that righteousness is is not ours, it is alien to us uh, in that it, it, it's Christ's, but it becomes ours by our union with him. So, so imputation does, it is a helpful term, particularly in the, in the context of medieval Catholicism into which I was speaking of course it's a helpful uh, term for realising that the reality that this righteousness, we have no claim to it on our own, it's entirely outside us. But it's no longer outside us when we are joined to Christ. Um, and so, I think some modern discussions, kind of, uh, you know, between um, exponents of the Reformed tradition and, say, the New Perspective on Paul, unhelpfully at times caricature both positions as though imputation somehow pitted against union with Christ. And so the new perspective guys say, well, we don't believe in imputation because we believe in union with Christ. And some of the reformed guys say, well, union with Christ is not the answer to justification, it's imputation. Well, that, that, it's a false dichotomy uh, really is what I'm arguing in the book. And yeah, I think that is a, a, a helpful way to proceed. But having said that, I do think that union with Christ is absolutely the key to our justification Um, and that imputation is a useful category understood within that grounding, um, but not in competition to it.
0: I would like to ask you about the category of union, as you called it earlier, or what I would call uh, maybe vital union with Christ, Um, the vine and the branches reference that Jesus makes in John. As you study Paul on the theme of vital union or organic union or experiential union, or I think you call it in one place, quote, actual spiritual union, end quote, with Christ, just how important is this personal union to Paul?
1: Well, I think it's extremely important to Paul because I think uh, everything that we have— from God and everything that we are in terms of our status is mediated through our union with Christ. Um, that's the point of the webbing metaphor: that you don't get anything from God except for what is ours through that union. Uh, so every every aspect of our union with Christ, whether it be the kind of more spiritual union or relational union, or um, some other kind of incorpor- uh, incorporation, for example. Um, it's all enormously important. And uh, I think it is very significant for our... If you, if you want to zero in on our, on our uh, spiritual relationship with God, I think that is really key and it affects our, our identity when we understand that um, we, are, we, we, we only have access to the Father because we are in the Son. Uh, and, of course, because of what he's done for us, of course. Those things are not in contradiction. But what he's done for us, we receive because we are in him, um, and he is in us. And so uh, the the chapter on the the Trinitarian nature of union with Christ I think is probably most significant for this question because uh, it it points out that the the nature of relating within the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, mutually indwelling the, the perichoretic, nature of their relationship, that nature of relationship is extended to believers. Now, it doesn't mean we're divine, and, and that's the direction that Eastern Orthodoxy goes off into, uh, divinization and, and so on. But there is truth to that, that the the, the, the nature of that kind of relating of, of the Father being in the Son, the Son being in the Father, and we being in the Son, the Son being in us, um, is a A trinitarian way of relating and that is by god's grace extended to us and so i think that's extraordinarily important for understanding our relationship to god um, and understanding ourselves our, our identity and who we are with respect to father son spirit
0: what's at stake for the christian who doesn't consciously understand that they have been united to christ
1: well, that's an interesting question um, because, you know, if, if it's true that the Western tradition in the last couple of centuries has kind of dropped the ball a little bit on union with Christ, it raises the question, you know, how uh, w- what's the significance of, of that in terms of our own, um, you know, Christian uh, orthodoxy and, and just situation, spiritual situation? I suppose the first thing I'd say is and this is what I, you know, I have said when I've, when I've preached on this topic in churches and so on, is that if you're a Christian, if you have faith in Christ, you are in Christ, whether you realize it or not. You have union with Christ, whether you understand what that means or not. Um, because we know that we are joined to Christ by faith. And so if you trust in Jesus in his death and resurrection for you, uh, you know, if your confidence is in him, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then, then you have union with Christ. And so my, my challenge is not so much, do you have union with Christ? That, that, that's not something that's up to us, actually. Um, but, uh, but the challenge is understand that because you have faith and the Spirit of God is in you, the Spirit of Christ is in you, you have union with Christ. So what does that mean? Um, what does that look like uh, in terms of your own relationship to God and your relationship, one, to each other because if I have union with Christ and you have union with Christ then we actually have union together. We're, we're incorporated into the body of Christ together. And what does that mean for our horizontal relationships as well as our vertical relationships? So that's kind of the way I put it, that um, you, it's not as though believers can lack this. You can't lack it if you're a genuine believer in, in Jesus. but uh, the challenge is to grasp hold of what is yours. And, and it's interesting, you know, when you look through, say, Ephesians in Paul's prayers in, in, in chapter second half of chapter 1 and in chapter 3, he prays that his readers would grasp what is theirs in Christ. So he doesn't say you've got to take hold of it. He, it's already yours. But understand it and therefore glorify God for it.
0: How does grasping our union with Christ make sense of our experiences of suffering in this life?
1: Yeah, well, one of the sort of curious things that Paul does is um, talk about his, his sufferings as sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And there's a lot of discussion, of course, about what that really means. But um, I take it the way that in a sense, regardless of what it means particularly, and there may be some sort of unique apostolic element to that as well, but uh, in terms of what it means for all believers, I think it, it means that um, when we participate with Christ in his death and resurrection, but particularly in his death, it means that we live that out. We, we continually live out our participation in his death in our own life. Um, the pattern of Christian discipleship is one where you are giving expression to your participation in Christ's death. Um, and what that means is um, to participate, to have died with Christ and be raised with Christ is not simply... Uh, it, it's not exhausted by being joined spiritually to what Jesus did in the narrative of his own life, dying for our sins and then rising again but that um, both of those things, dying with Christ and rising with Christ, have a continual expression in the way our discipleship is worked out. Uh, and what that will mean is we will suffer. Um, we will suffer in this world. You know, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, uh, everyone who desires a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, and, and so if you are in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution because that's what he suffered and uh, yeah, so th- so that's how I think it, it works out, that we simultaneously live out the death and the resurrection of Jesus day by day
0: um, until he returns. And that leads me into the next question I've most anticipated asking, really. It, it seems to me that two of the most overlooked Pauline themes are union with Christ, and also this old aeon, new aeon, eschatological framework in Paul. I mean, you cover both of these in your book. And they particularly intersect in your discussion of Romans 6. Can you sketch out for us, just briefly, in our remaining time here, what it means that because Christ has been raised from the dead, that a new age has broken into history?
1: Yes, it is a very important point, And that's the other side of living out your death with Christ is living out your resurrection with Christ. Um, and I think to understand what that means, you've got to take a step back first and understand what is the theological significance of resurrection. And so this is a, this is a little hobby horse of mine because I think we tend to be, particularly in, in the circles in which I find myself in, we're very good at talking about what the cross means uh, Jesus' death for for us, um, penal substitutionary atonement and reconciliation and propitiation and so on. We we're not so good at understanding the theology of the resurrection. Now we we're good at talking about the the historicity of the resurrection and what that what that means for the authenticity of of faith in Christ and so on. But what about the theology of the resurrection? And one of the points I like to make is that. Resurrection is an extremely important theological topic in the Bible. Um, and first you need to start in the Old Testament, saying Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, where there is the expectation of a general resurrection at the end of time for judgment. Now Jesus picks this up himself in John chapter 5 and says that all will be raised, some for the resurrection of life and some for the resurrection of judgment. Um, and you see it reflected in, in Martha, is Mary or Martha, I always forget. I think it's Martha in John 11 when uh, Lazarus has died and Jesus says, do you believe he will rise again? And she says, yes, he will rise again in the last day. Um, that, that is a common Jewish uh, belief through the intertestamental period but actually beginning in the Old Testament that at the end of time all people will be raised and at that point there will be judgment Uh, And if you're found to be on the right side of God, you live forever with God. And if you're on the wrong side of God, you face eternal judgment. Um, Now, that background, I think, is essential for understanding what it means to be raised with Christ. Because what does it mean for Jesus to be raised, first of all? Well, this is the thing that I think blows Paul's mind entirely when he encounters the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road, Is that if someone has been raised from the dead then the end of time has broken in to now Uh, and I think the fact of Jesus resurrection entirely explains Paul's eschatology and in fact the eschatology of the whole New Testament which is the overlap of the ages the old and the new overlapping together now that eschatology is, is, is well known and I think generally well understood. But it's not necessarily understood as to why it's like that. And I think in Paul's mind, the reason it's like that is because a man has been raised from the dead. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, when he calls Jesus', uh, Jesus resurrection the first fruits, what he means is he's the first of that general resurrection. And the, it means that the end-time judgment... And the ushering in of the New Age has already begun with the resurrection of Jesus. Now, having said all that, what does it mean then to participate in the resurrection of Jesus? It means, uh, Romans 6, when you've died with Christ, you're, you're uh, belonging to the realm of Adam, which is all the in-Adam stuff that he's been talking about in second half of chapter 5, um, you're now, you've now died to that world and that eon and that age and you have now been resurrected or reborn into the age of Christ, uh, the new age. And so uh, that's why you, you simultaneously die in this world. You die each day. You're putting yourself to death because you spiritually have already died with Christ to this world um, and living out the resurrection every day because you are expressing your membership in the new realm of Christ through resurrection. And I think uh, in in some Christian traditions, there's an overemphasis on the dying with Christ and not enough grasping of being raised with Christ. And in other Christian traditions, it's the other way around, as though we're in heaven now and there's no suffering to be had. But you're quite right, that's entirely key for Paul. He's simultaneously dying every day because he participates in Christ's death, and he is engaging in his new life in Christ, in the new realm, every day.
0: That was Dr. Constantine Campbell from his office in Sydney, Australia. Dr. Campbell is the author of the new book, Paul and Union with Christ, an exegetical and theological study, published in November of 2012 by Zondervan. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.